from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the CER Podcast. My name is Sophia Besch. I'm a research fellow here at the Center for European Reform. And today I'm in conversation with Camino Motera Martinez, who is a research fellow and works on justice and home affairs for the CER in Brussels. Welcome, Camino. Good morning, Sophia. So we're going to talk today about uh, what the next future security relationship between the UK and the EU will look like after Brexit and more importantly, how to get there. Because in her speech at the Munich Security Conference earlier this year, Prime Minister Theresa May has suggested that the EU and the UK could conclude a new treaty to underpin their future internal security relationship. And so if that's what the UK is aiming to do, to negotiate an overarching treaty with the EU covering cooperation and justice and home affairs, what we want to do now is talk about what that treaty could look like, what it could cover and how to get there. So first, what will this treaty cover, Camino? The UK even as an EU member state, has not really subscribed to all of Justice and Home Affairs cooperation. It has opted out of some measures and opted into others. What are the UK's priority? What does it want to achieve with this security treaty? To me, one of the main things is to look at a bit of a background very quickly. So the UK is seeking an overarching treaty, as you were saying. And that is a very interesting question, because if you look at the way other countries cooperate with the EU, both Schengen and non-Schengen countries, I'm thinking about Norway, but I'm also thinking about the US or Canada or Australia, none of them has this overarching uh, security treaty. So what the UK is seeking here is really uh, what Theresa May likes to call a bespoke agreement. And certain agreements will obviously not cover every single Justin Home Affairs measure because A, is impractical, and B, as you were saying before, Theresa May herself has made it very clear that she doesn't really want to be part of the whole Justice and Home Affairs realm in Europe. So we don't really know what the UK government wants. I think that that's a fair assumption for everybody. But taking it from what uh, Theresa May said during her Munich speech, we can fairly guess that the UK would focus on four main things. And I think those will be basically um, the European Arrest Warrant, which is a very important instrument for the UK. Also access to databases. And here I'm thinking about the Schengen Information System, obviously, but also other less known databases like the Prune databases, which store DNA and fingerprints, and obviously the passenger name records as well, uh, which helps uh, aviation companies tracking and tracing uh, potential terrorists. Then the third measure that uh, Theresa May mentioned was the European investigation order. That one is a bit more obscure and people have uh, heard less about it. And last but not least, I think that the UK is very interested in staying plugged into Europol, which is the European police agency. All right, so let's just go from there and talk about what you expect as an expert to be the price of such a treaty. So for the UK to maintain its privileges, even as a non-EU member state, what will it have to offer to the EU? Right, it is clear that it is the case for trade, but it's obviously going to be the case for just the home affairs as well. That is not only because there is political will on both sides to have an agreement, that there is not going to be a price to pay, right? In our case, the price to pay, it's quite clear from the beginning. So 
if the UK wants to retain access to databases, it will really need to comply with European Union data protection standards. That means keeping um, data protection laws in place, uh, but also possibly accepting some sort of role for the European data protection supervisor. And, and this is possibly anathema for many Brexiteers, the, the UK would need to understand that in this highly complex and legalistic area, there is no way to escape uh, at least some partial oversights of the European Court of Justice. And I think both May and some members of her government had made it very clear that data protection standards and some role for the European Court of Justice might be possible when we are talking about Justin Homophers. So perhaps not surprisingly, I'm going to push you a bit to talk more about the European Court of Justice, about the ECJ, because this is what it always boils down to. At least that's my impression when it comes to justice and home affairs. Theresa May in her Munich security speech has at least hinted that the UK might be willing to loosen its stance a little bit in order to keep up with the EU's evolving regulatory environment, somehow accept some arbitration authority of the ECJ. How politically doable do you think that is domestically for her? I think that's going to be a tough one to sell, but I think she's starting off from the right place because, in my opinion, there is a reason why uh, there is backlash uh, in the UK against the European Court of Justice. And it's the fact that sometimes the European Court of Justice has been more than a court, has been a rule maker, so to speak. So it has made European Union law. Um, however, there are many areas of EU law where the European Court of Justice acts indeed as a referee, so as, as somebody who is kind of trying to, to, to attribute disputes uh, in between parties. And uh, in the case of the European Arrest Warrant, for example, uh, that is a very clear example where the European Court of Justice is more of a referee than a rulemaker. For example, no judge in Luxembourg is going to send any British person to jail in another country. That is not a, a competence of the European Court of Justice. However, and as we are seeing already, countries can ask the European Court of Justice whether sending certain people to country A or B is in accordance to European Union law and in this case to the European arrest warrants. So it is only logic to think that if there is a UK-EU treaty on extradition, eventually a country will ask the European Court of Justice whether or not an extradition decision made to or from the UK is in accordance to the treaty that the UK and the EU have concluded. So I think that's a kind of referee role is is going to be very difficult to escape, and Theresa May knows it because she worked very much in this area before. Uh, so I think she's starting from the right uh, point when she says we might accept some role for the European Court of Justice. Right, she might have to do some convincing of her own constituencies on this. The next point that I want to get to is quite. EU geeky, but I'm going to ask our audience to bear with us on this um, and ask you to perhaps talk a bit about what this treaty should look like, what shape it will have. Because as we're entering the negotiations, there are basically two ways that this could go down, right? On the one hand, it could either be a standalone security treaty or it could be incorporated into the future partnership agreement between the UK and the EU in general. What is the difference between these two pathways and what do you think is the better option? 
You see, already the idea of a treaty was uh, is a bit of a, of a puzzle for, for legal nerds uh, like me. There is no third country that has an overarching security treaty. Most countries have ad hoc agreements. However, it is much wiser for the UK and the EU to actually do come down to one single agreement, covering, as I was saying before, four or five areas and not a vast array of areas because that's going to be impossible. And it is, in my opinion, much more intelligent to make these agreements part of the wider UK-EU treaty, which I would call the Brexit treaty, for two reasons. The first one is because part of the price to pay for this agreement is going to be data protection. So the UK would have an interest in accepting EU data protection rules, in maintaining them, because it, they are already in place in the UK. So I am assuming that the Brexit treaty could have a section that talks about data protection in which, for example, the UK says uh, we agree to maintain data protection standards that, which are already in place in the UK. It only makes sense that the next section would be a section on cooperation on police and criminal matters. And it is also much more practical to do it this way, because as we all know, the European Parliament has a tendency to vote down agreements with third countries, uh, mainly because of data protection concerns. So if we insert a section dealing with criminal and police cooperation in a wider Brexit treaty, we are less at the mercy of the LIBE committee, which is the committee in the European Parliament that deals with the whole data protection, privacy, security and all that, which has a tendency to be very activist uh, when it comes to these kind of things. And we kind of leave it more to the plenary, which tends to be a bit more rational, so to speak, or a bit less tempered. It would actually make it less likely for the European Parliament to vote it down because one thing that Theresa May, her government and Brexiteers uh, alike have to understand is that any treaty with the European Union on these matters is going to have to be voted by the European Parliament. There is no way to escape the European Parliament in this one. I think making it a part of the wider treaty makes sense for these two reasons. Okay, so coming to the last question, I think that's going to be a two-part question. For the first part, I'm going to ask you to keep your lawyer hat on for a little while longer and elaborate a bit on what you've brought up in your last answer, which is the role of the European Parliament and the role possibly of other EU institutions in the ratification of this treaty. What will be the legal basis for that? And then the second part of that question, I'd like you to talk politics. And as you mentioned earlier, there are other third countries who have agreements with the EU in these areas, like for example, the United States or Denmark, possibly, what might they think, how might they feel about the UK signing a specific all-encompassing security treaty within their final agreement with the EU? Okay, so let's start with the boring legal bit of things. If the UK wants to have an agreement on criminal uh, matters and police cooperation, it will need to follow a legal basis in the treaty like any other treaty that the, the EU concludes with a third country. A legal basis is an article in the treaty of the functioning of the European Union that allows you to do certain things. So in this case, it would be Article 218, which says that if the European Union wants to conclude an agreement with a third country on areas that follow what we call the ordinary legislative procedure, so it follows uh, this infamous codecision procedure by which the Commission proposes and then the Council and the Parliament decides, then it needs to be based on this article and it needs to be negotiated by the Commission and the Council and approved by the European Parliament. So as I was saying before, there is no escape in the European Parliament in here. And this is something that 
both the UK and the European institutions would do very well in taking into account from the beginning, because, as I was saying before, it would not be the first, neither the second time, that we negotiate an agreement, it takes us years and years, and then we arrive at the stage of the European Parliament, and then the European Parliament feels uninformed, and then they decide to vote it down, as they have the right to do. And that takes me to the politics bit of things, because you were saying that, of course, uh, it is not only about the law, but it's also about what will member states and third countries think about the UK having a special relationship. I cannot talk for the Americans, the Canadians, the, you know, the Australians, the Swiss, because I'm Spanish, so I'm, I, I'm part of a EU member state. But I think, I have a strong feeling that the Americans would actually not be against the UK having an overarching agreement with the EU, because that would help advance their own agenda in the sense that they would actually prefer to have such a relationship with Europe instead of, you know, a piecemeal one in which they have to be very careful with what they do and very careful with the things they ask. On that side, I think third countries are going to be on the UK side, and this is a guesstimate on my side. However, I do think that the problem will be with Schengen countries, so Schengen non-EU countries, like Norway and Iceland and Switzerland as well, and uh, it would also be with EU non-Schengen countries. And I know that this distinction is difficult to make sometimes, but imagine that on the one hand we have those countries who belong to the Schengen area, but do not belong to the European Union, who have agreements in place with the European Union on borders, on police cooperation and all these sort of things. And this, as I was saying before, Norway, Iceland, Switzerland. And then we've got Denmark, which has a very similar position like the UK does, a bit, a bit of an awkward position on just homophores, because it is part of the EU, but it's not part of Schengen. The problem is that if the EU was to give the UK an agreement that was remotely similar to what the Schengen countries have, they would have a problem, not because they're fundamentally opposed to somebody having a special status or whatever, but because for some countries like Switzerland, it's very difficult as well to sell Schengen membership back home. And citizens would ask, why do we belong to Schengen with all these migration concerns that we have and all the problems that we have with that? There is this country which is outside of Schengen that has the same privileges that we have, but doesn't have, so to speak, the burdens of Schengen membership. So that is, that's on the one side. And then on the other hand, you're going to have Denmark, who is going to tell you, look, I've spent the past two years negotiating an agreement with Europol because um, they also have a ref had a referendum and they opted out uh, Europol, so they are not part of Europol. They spent two years negotiating access to the Europol information system, access to Europol as such, and they got a very, very, very limited deal by which if they want to, for example, access uh, the U Europol information system, they need to ask a liaison officer, uh, which is posed there instead of actually asking the system directly. The UK is seeking to have have direct access to these sort of databases, to have a, a, a bigger role in Europol because they argue we have shaped Europol for the past five or six years, which is absolutely true. But then the Danish government is going to say, why are you giving this to the UK and you are not giving it to us? So I think that the most important stumbling block in these negotiations is possibly not going to be all EU27, because there are some which are very much in favour of having a like deep relationship uh, with the UK, is going to be the non-Schengen EU and the non-EU Schengen countries, if that makes any sense. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, we really did get into the weeds in this podcast, but I think it's absolutely necessary and so fascinating to sort of start thinking about the next phase, having discussed potential models to really go into the nitty gritty of how the EU and the UK could structure their security relationship post-Brexit. Thank you so much, Camino Matera Martinez. Thank you very much.
Thanks for listening to the CEA podcast and thanks to Beth Oppenheim, our editor. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and follow us on Twitter, CEA underscore EU.